my name is Jordan, and I am one of the pastors here at E-Free. It is great to be with you here this morning. Welcome to everybody here in the auditorium, and welcome to anybody watching online. So glad you could join us today. Uh, so we are continuing our series called Broken to Beautiful, where we have been digging into Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, and he's been writing to them to correct and to address and to encourage a d- bunch of different things that have been going on. And as we're doing that, I want to talk to you about coaching for a minute. My guess is that many of you here have been coached at some point in your life, whether it was on a team or whether it was in a classroom or some aspect of coaching, you've experienced it. My guess is a lot of you are in here have coached. I know that we have a lot of coaches that attend our church. And so at the risk of oversimplifying coaching, there are two things that really come to mind when I think of coaching. One is encouragement, that you want to encourage the student or the athlete to do what is right, that you you see them doing something and they're using the right technique, they're doing what they're supposed to do, but they're just not getting the results. And so you keep encouraging them to keep doing it because the results are going to come, that even though it's not there right now, keep working at it and it's going to happen. But then the second part of it is correction. It's when you see the wrong attitude, or you see the wrong behavior, or you see the wrong technique, and you start to address it and say, you know, you're using this leg, you've got to use the other leg. You're, you're putting your weight on the back of your feet, you've got to put it on the front of your feet. Or you're trying to jump off one foot, you've got to jump off two feet. Or whatever it might be, you're trying to address it. And when it comes to church, I think that many of us, we love the encouragement. We love when we come on a Sunday morning and we're reminded of God's grace and mercy and his love for us and we feel encouragement in those moments. And that's really good. We should want those things. We should experience those things in church. But there are other moments when the Bible corrects us, when it points out things in us that aren't right, things in us that are missing the mark. And as as the Bible points those things out, we go, ouch. And then hopefully we want to grow. We want to say, okay, you identified something that's wrong. I need to address this. I want to grow. And really, it's a good thing when the Bible does that. It would not be helpful for your coach to see you doing something wrong and to say, whatever. I don't really like that player, so I'm going to put my coaching effort into somebody else. You wouldn't want that. You would want to say, hey, I want you to coach me like you coach everybody else. Like, I want you to address the things in me that are going wrong like you address everybody else. And so what I, I say that because I hope that as we receive some correction this morning through Paul's letter, but we're going to have it uh, many more times because Paul is addressing a number of things that are wrong inside the Corinthian church, that some Sundays it's going to be an ouch Sunday, and it's just God pointing out stuff in us that needs to grow. And then sometimes it's just going to be affirmation that we're growing in the right direction. It'll be encouragement at times. But when it comes to correction, my hope is that you wouldn't shy back from it, or shy away from it, but instead you would say, God, would you help me to grow in these areas that you're pointing out in me? So this morning, we are going to look at 1 Corinthians 3, and we're going to look at how Paul is going to call the church in Corinth to grow into maturity. So let me pray. Father God, I thank you for your love and your goodness. I thank you for your correction. That God, you are good to correct us. That instead of leaving us to our own devices, leaving us where we're stuck, God, instead you point out what needs to grow and then you give us the power and the ability to grow. And so I pray, God, that as we feel your conviction this morning, we wouldn't, uh, instead of trying to shy away from it or turn back from it, instead we would lean in and we'd say, God, would you help us to grow? Pray this on your son's name. Amen. All right, so you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It is in the New Testament. It goes, um, 
John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. So if you get to John, Acts, Romans, you turn on the right, you'll find 1 Corinthians. If you get to 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, you're too far to the right, go to the left, and you can find 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to cover the entire chapter this morning. So I had a choice to make. Um, I had two options. Option one was I could dive deep on every verse and we'd be here for two hours. And I thought you probably were not thrilled about that. So I chose option two. Option two was I would dive deep on a couple of verses and I would skim over some of the other ones. And so we would be here for about 35 minutes. And so we're going to skim over some of the verses. So if I skim over a verse, so I don't talk for a lot about a verse that you were hoping we were going to dive deep on, please feel free to come talk to me following the service and to say, hey, I really want to know more about this, that I'm no expert by any means, but I did spend the last couple of weeks studying this passage. I'd be happy to share with I learned as I was studying it. All right, so as you turn to 1 Corinthians 3, I want to give you some background context. So one who's writing, Paul. Paul is writing, he's an apostle. He came to Corinth, and there were no Christians there. He began to share the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the good news about it, that it... Um, rescues, redeems, transforms, regenerates sinners to be like Jesus. It invites them into God's family. And people came to trust and believe in this. And as they trust and believe, Paul formed them into a church. And then Paul was with them for anywhere between a year and a half, half a year to a year and a half as he was discipling them. And then he left and a guy named Apollos came in behind him and he taught them. And Paul has been gone for two to three years and in that two to three years, the church has been beginning to divide. They have um, decided that they want earthly leaders, and they've made these little groups around them. And so one group is around Paul, and they're going, Paul's our leader, Paul's the best. Another is around Apollos, they're saying, no, Paul's the leader, Paul's, Paulus is the best. And then a third group is around Peter. And this group is most likely probably made up of Gentiles, um, but the one group, I, I think there's a small group of Jewish believers in here, and they are rallied around Peter. Uh, along with fighting over which leader they want, they were also becoming foolish by following the wisdom of the Greek and Roman philosophers. So the Greeks and the Romans, they were wrapped up in certain things. And so the things that the Greeks, the Greeks and Romans despised was weakness. They did not like weakness. They did not like service. They were thought um, birth status was really important. So if you were born a Roman citizen, you were better than everybody else. You were more important than everybody else. And then if you had a lot of knowledge, you were more important than everybody else. And so those are the things they despised, and those are the things that they liked. And then Paul comes along, and Paul shares the gospel. And the gospel is that God became weak. He became a human being. And he became a human being so that he could die on a cross for his people. After he spent his... Uh, three years of ministry telling everybody that they should become servants. So that is not, that sounds like foolishness to the Greeks and the Romans. And so they're going, we don't think we really want much to do with this. And they're preaching something that's contrary to that, opposite of that, opposite of the gospel, I should say. And so the Corinthians are beginning to be pulled in that direction and say, hey, should we adapt? Should we modify our Christianity to fit inside the Roman views of strength and weakness and all these different things? And into that, Paul's going to write to them. So chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not re yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, 
Are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? So Paul is beginning to address their maturity. And he's saying, you guys are immature. He says, when I met you guys and you came to trust and believe in Jesus, you were new believers. And so it made sense that you were immature. It made sense that you were there. And he says, when I met you like that, I gave you milk. I gave you the elementary pieces of our faith that I I hammered that we are saved through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was what I made known among you. That I didn't go on to the weightier matters of our faith because you weren't ready for those things yet. But then he says, he switches, and he says, you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. So he says, three years have passed, and you haven't grown at all from when I left. You haven't matured at all. You're still worldly. And then he gives the reasons why they're worldly. He says that there's jealousy among them, that there's quarreling or fighting, and that they're gathering around earthly leaders. They're gathering around Paul and Apollos and making much of them instead of Jesus. So as I was reading this, this question came to my mind, could Paul address me as someone who lives by the Spirit? And this is our first takeaway this morning. Could Paul address me as someone who lives by the Spirit? If Paul was to write me a letter today, would he say to Jordan at Kearney, when I first met you, I had to give you milk. You were an infant, unable to eat solid food. And still, Jordan, still you haven't moved beyond these basics. I I still have to continue to hammer these things because you haven't taken them to heart and grown in these things? Or would he be able to say, Jordan, when I met you, you you were an infant in the faith, but now you've grown, you've matured, and I can address you as someone who can deal with the solid food of our faith. So could Paul address me as someone who lives by the Spirit? So his litmus test for this is what is most noticeable in your life. He said, the Corinthians, what is most noticeable in you guys is the jealousy. You guys are jealous of one another over what, who gets to do what in the church. You're jealous over what tasks people have, over who's most important. You're jealous over these things. And then you're fighting over who gets to do what. And then you're, you're gathering around earthly leaders not named Jesus. That you're gathering around these things, these people. The opposite, the mature person reflects the fruit of the Spirit. The love, the joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. These are the things that are noticeable in their life. And so the question is, what's most noticeable in my life? If people, outsiders saw me, what would they say? Would they say, or the people that know me best, what would they say? Would they say, I mean, he's always jealous of these other people. Or that he's always fighting with these other people, these brothers and sisters in Christ, these fellow Christians, he's always arguing and fighting with them. That that he's most wrapped up in these earthly leaders and not Jesus. Or they say, when, when they talk, when he talks, it's about Jesus. When you interact with him, it's about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self control. 
So that first section, it just made me ask the question, could Paul address me as someone who lives by the Spirit, or is there areas of immaturity in me that still need to grow? But then he moves on, and he's going to give them uh, an agricultural, a gardening, farming metaphor to talk about what's going on. Verse 5, he says, What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. She moves on to this argument, and he says, what after all is Apollos and what is Paul? He's like, do you guys even know who Apollos and Paul are? He says, they're servants. You guys are getting in this fight over who's the best servant. Like, stop arguing over servants and look above that to the master of the servants, to the Lord of the servants, Jesus, to God. Look to him. He says, these are servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned to each one of them his task. He said, God gave me the task of planting the seed, and I think that's the gospel. Saying, I came to Corinth, and I sprinkled the gospel, I spread it around, and it took root in some of your hearts, and it began to grow. So that was my role, that was the task that God assigned to me to do. And then Apollos came behind me, and he watered those seeds that had been taking root and were growing. And that was his role. But it's God who's been making the growth occur. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. He says, it's not a big deal if we planted or we watered. We didn't cause the growth. The one who caused the growth is God. Only God who makes things grow. He says, if you're wrapped up in the plant or you're wrapped up in the water, you're missing the point. The point is God who makes things grow. He is the one that you should be focused on. He's the one that you should be wrapped up in. It says, the one who plants and the one who waters, they have one purpose. Their purpose is to see fruit, is to see produce. When you have a garden, when you plant the seed, you plant the seed because you hope that one day it's going to produce cucumbers or tomatoes or jalapenos or watermelon or whatever it is. You don't plant it and go, we'll just see what happens. Like you plant it going and you put maybe the little stick there that has the plant that you're going, this is what's going to come up. And if that plant doesn't come up, you go, what happened? Like something's wrong because you wanted the produce. That's the whole point. That's the purpose. So he's saying when I planted the seed, my purpose was to see you guys grow, to produce fruit, to become mature. When Apollos watered the seed that I planted, it's because he wanted to see you grow. He wanted to see you become mature. And he says there's going to be a reward for each one for the labor that they did. And we'll get into that reward in a moment. But then he says, for we are co-workers. We're on the same team. That we're working together. He says, teams do not work if you have the teams working against each other. The teams have to be going in the same direction if the team is going to be successful. If they are fighting against each other, that is going to be very unsuccessful. He says, do you not understand that Apollos and I, were on the same team. We're co-workers. In God's field, in God's service, and then he says, God's building. So now I think he's going to change metaphors. 
He's been working on the metaphor of gardening or farming, and now he's going to switch metaphor to construction. It says, by the grace, verse 10, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though, as, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you or yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. So we switch to this building metaphor. He says, I planted the seed before and now he's talking about I built the foundation. He says, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. He says, I laid the foundation when I brought the gospel and I planted it in your life. I built this foundation, and then people came in behind me. They began to build layers on top of that. But each one should build with care, because there's going to be a test. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. He says there's no other way to become a Christian than Jesus Christ. There's other, no other way to get to heaven than through Jesus. It is only by his life, death, and resurrection applied to us by faith that we can get into heaven. There is no other way. So he says, if you're trying to build on some other foundation, it's not going to last. If anyone builds on this foundation of Jesus, he says, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, I think those are all metaphors or figurative. But you have three that are, three, three that are going to last, and then three that are not going to last. He says, they build on this. Says it's going to be tested, for their work will be shown for what it is, because the day, and in my Bible, the NIV day is capitalized because it's referring to judgment day. The day when Jesus returns from heaven, and on that day, he's going to judge, and he's going to divide the world into two groups those who have surrendered their life to him and those that have not. And he says, additionally, on that day, there is going to be a judgment of the work that people have done in service to Jesus. And some of that work is going to stand up because it is going to be done with gold or silver or costly stones, and so it's going to endure this testing fire. But other of that work is going to be consumed because it was done with wood, hay, or straw. But the quality of the work will be revealed on that day. Then in verse 14 it says, If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. So what's this reward? If you turn over to chapter 4, verse 5, I think he addresses the reward. So he says, Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. That sounds a lot to me like the day of the Lord or the day of judgment. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. He will reveal the people's work for what it is. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. So instead of saying reward this time, he says praise. And so I think what the reward is, is that those that have built well, those that have been wise, they'll stand before God and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. 
said, you did a great job. He said, you had this opportunity and that opportunity and this opportunity and what you built survived, what you built lasted. You did a good work. And I think there's a possibility he might walk you through your life and take you to those moments and he said, when you did this, I delighted in you. It brought me so much joy to see you do this in service to my kingdom, in service to me. But then in verse 15, we see the opposite. What happens to those that build with things that don't survive the test? If it is burned up, if it's consumed, the builder will suffer loss. They won't receive the reward. But yet, we'll be saved. So it's not a salvation issue. It's about will you get the reward of praise or will you not? Even though only as one escaping through the flame. So the picture, someone's house is burning down and they escape through the window and their clothes are charred and singed and they lose everything behind them, but they escape themselves. And the idea is that there's these people that are going to have worked, and they're going to turn back, and it's all going to turn to ash and dust. But they're going to escape. They're going to be welcomed into heaven still because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that was applied to them by faith. So let's talk for a moment. A couple things. First, I should give you a caveat that those verses I just read are some of the most disagreed about verses in the entire Bible. There are very wise people that would disagree with the interpretation I just gave you, but I, as I read it and studied it, I, I think that that's the right interpretation. I could be wrong about that. There's also wise people that agree with me, but there are wise people that disagree with me. I'm not against all the smart people. Um, so I could be wrong about this, but I really think that it's about we're standing before Jesus and we, we either get the reward of praise good job, well done, good and faithful servant, or we will stand before him and he's going to say, you wasted it. You wasted it. You had all these opportunities to make a difference in my kingdom and you wasted it. And maybe what you're hearing is, okay, so here's what you're saying, Jordan. I, I can live my life. I can pour myself out for God's kingdom. I can serve people. I can love them well. And at the end, I'll stand before him and I'll say, good job. He'll give me a pat on the back and then I'll say, hey, go on into heaven. Or I can live however I want and then I can stand before him and he's going to not pat me on the back and he's going to say, you wasted it. Go on into heaven. If that's how it's going to be, I don't think I'm going to do whatever I want, live however I want, and then I'm going to go into heaven. Because that sounds a lot more fun and a lot more easy here on earth. And I just want to warn you, if that is the bent of your heart, when you hear that, to say, I don't really care about the praise, I just want to do what I want. If that is the bent of your heart, I have some deep concerns about whether or not you're really saved. I'm not here to say that you're not, because I don't know your heart. But that is not the attitude of someone who has surrendered their heart to Jesus. That someone who has said, and trust in faith, Jesus, my entire life is yours. It seems to me their heart would be, God, I want to serve you in your kingdom, not I want to do whatever I want. And at the end, I just accept I just expect you to let me in because I said a phrase. And so I'm concerned that if you're, the bent of your heart is, I'm just going to do whatever I want, and at the end I'll miss out on some pats on the back, but I just get to go into heaven, that the reality is either you're immature, and I hope that you will grow in your faith, or you're just not a Christian. And you think that you have the password to get into heaven. And then I'm concerned that you're going to get there on that day and you're going to think that I have the password to heaven. And there's some terrifying verses in the Bible where people go to Jesus and they say, Lord, Lord, and he says, be away from me. I do not know you. 
And I do not want anyone in this room or watching online to think they have the password to get in heaven and then you get there and find out your password is no good because it wasn't a phrase. It was a life lived in submission to Jesus to the best of your ability. And we will not do it perfectly. We will not do it perfectly. But to the best of our ability, we, we, if there's something in us that's saying, I don't really care about his praise, I don't really care about living to follow him, then that is a big red flag that something is off in your heart. And so I would ask, would you do the difficult work to ask Jesus, am I just hoping in a moment where I said a phrase, where I learned a phrase, or am I really saying I've surrendered my life to Jesus? And I have a relationship with him. And so when I stand before him, it's not a phrase, it's him. It's not gonna be, well, I said this when I was in eighth grade, or I was at camp, or was I went forward at one time, it's gonna be, I've known you all my life. And I don't deserve to get in, but I, you're going to let me in because of what you've done for me. Because I, I, I want to stand before him and I want him to say, good job, well done, good and faithful servant. That I hope he can take me through my life and show places where I made a difference for his kingdom. And if, if I get there and he just says, Jordan, you wasted it, it's going to be crushing. And I'm grateful that out of his grace and his mercy, he will let me come in still, but it'll be crushing to know that I wasted my life. And my, my hope is that you would feel the same. Amen. So then he, he goes on. And he begins to re directly address the Corinthians about their situation. He says, do not deceive yourselves. Do not deceive yourselves. It's so easy to deceive yourself. It says, do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise, by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death, whether present or the future. All are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. So he says, hey, you guys have been doing all these things that are silly because you think it makes you look wise. He says, do not deceive yourselves. You've been using the wrong standard. And so there's an important question. If you think that you are wise, what standard are you using to judge your wisdom? What is the standard you're using? Because I can tell you, when I was in middle school, I thought I was super wise. And then I got to high school, and I thought I was a fool when I was in middle school, but now I'm wise. And then I got to college, and I thought, when I was in high school, I was a fool, but now I'm wise. And then I got to my 20s, and I thought, when I was in college, I was a fool. And it, there's a recurring pattern here in my life that you may notice. And so in the moment, I think that I'm smart, and then down the road, I realize I wasn't nearly as smart as I thought I was. And so I need a better standard than my own judgment. I need God's. And so he, he says, if any of you thinks you are wise by the standards of this age, he says, throw those standards away and you should become fools so that you may become wise. He says, become a fool. He says, follow Christ and it may, it may make you look like a fool to the non-Christian people around you, to the Greeks and Romans around you. It may make you look like a fool to them, but you actually be wise. And so this is our takeaway Growing into a mature disciple of Jesus will often look like foolishness to the world. When you grow to become a mature disciple of Jesus, it's going to look oftentimes like foolishness to the world. 
And you may be like, Jordan, that doesn't sound right. That sounds backwards and silly. But think about this. Would you get in your mind, get in your mind that a coworker or a neighbor, someone who doesn't want anything to do with Jesus, you, they're a nice person, but you're like, I, I know them, they just don't really want to follow Jesus at all. And then begin to think about some of these things that a mature disciple of Jesus does. If you went to them and you said, hey friend, I just thought it might be helpful for you to know that I give 10% of my income to the church. And I give away some percentages on top of that to some ministries and missionaries and places I really want to see the kingdom of God work in those places. They would go, you're a fool. You give away 10% of your income, that's a foolish thing to do. Or if you said, you know, I let an invisible God that I have never met, I've never seen him really, but I let him set the boundaries of my sexuality. I let him get to tell me what I do with my body. They would say, you're a fool. Or if you said, you know, I volunteer around my church. I, I give them, you know, two, three, five hours of my week because I believe in what they're doing. I believe in the mission and the vision of there. And so I want to see other people come to grow and to know Jesus. I say, that's a nice thing, but you're a fool. Like, you need some me time. Go spend some time with yourself. Or if you said, you know, I, I'm waiting to get married, to have sex, or to move in with my fiance. They would say, what are you doing? You're a fool. You're gonna pay for two rents? That's a foolish thing to do. And these are things that mature followers of Christ, they do because they say, you know, my money doesn't belong to me, it belongs to God. My body doesn't belong to me, it belongs to God. My time doesn't belong to me, it belongs to God. My, my sexuality doesn't belong to me, it belongs to God. It's a gift God's given me, so I give it back to him. And so I think these are the deeper, weightier matters. This is the me. He's like, I can't talk to you about those things because you guys don't even, you're not even close to that yet. But this is what mature disciples do, but it's going to look like foolishness to the world. They know nothing about Jesus. They're going to say, this is foolishness. Why would you do any of these things? So real quickly here, I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to know, I do not ask you this question because I want to create guilt or shame. I'm asking this question because what I want to do is I want to help us identify if there is something in us that has missed the mark. Because I think that far too many of us, me included, have been so shaped by the outside forces in our society that we have the wrong idea about what would be most helpful in God's kingdom. And so think about, I have three people I want you to think about. Who do you aspire to be in your life? Like, like if you had a wish and you could say, would you make me one of these people or give me the gifts, the abilities that these people have, which one would you ask for? So the first is Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa, an incredible woman, gives her life to serve the poor and the outcast, people that are dying of AIDS, of leprosy, of cancer in India. She gives her life to, to care for people that can never care back for her, never give her anything back. She gives away her time, her effort, her life. That I think there'd be people that would go, that's a very noble thing to do, but it's unnecessary and foolish. But then the next person is LeBron James. And no matter whether you think Michael Jordan is better or not, that's not important. LeBron James. And I'm not here to say that you can't be a Christian and be a professional athlete. So don't hear me say that. But the reality is, I think that many of us think if I had the platform of LeBron James, if I had the dunking ability of LeBron James, if I had all of his abilities, I can make a difference for the kingdom of God. Or perhaps it's Jennifer Aniston. 
You could think, if I just had the longevity of Jennifer Aniston, if I had the friends that Jennifer Aniston has, if I had the platform that she had, if I had the appeal that she had, I could do a lot of good for the kingdom of God. And so what we're trying to do is trying to be impressive people like LeBron or Jennifer Aniston. And what was most convicting as I was thinking about this is who did Jesus look like? He looked like Mother Teresa. And I can tell you how many times I thought, man, if I could dunk a basketball... Like, this is silliness that exists inside of me. Like, I, as a youth pastor, I thought, you know, after a Coney High basketball game, their kids are playing. If I could just grab a ball and dunk it, everyone would want to come to my youth group. Like, it's foolishness. Foolishness. But that's the foolishness of the world, that if I could dunk a basketball, people would want to be around me. Jesus does not need people who can dunk basketballs. If you can, use that to the glory of God. If you can act, use that to the glory of God. But God does not need people who can dunk a basketball. He needs servants. And that's Paul's point. He's saying, Apollos was a servant. Paul was a servant. We're servants. We do our task. We do our job. We don't need to be impressive people. And the problem, and the problem that exists inside of me and exists inside of so many of us is that we're stuck in immaturity because what we're trying to do is we're trying to impress people that want nothing to do with Jesus. And so the first step after believing and trusting and following Jesus, the next step is to stop trying to impress people that want nothing to do with Jesus. To just say, you know, following Jesus, being a mature disciple, it's going to make me look foolish. People are not going to understand it, and I'm not going to impress them anymore, and that's okay. Because God does not need impressive people. He needs faithful people. And he needs people who's willing to do the task that God has given them and the space he's given them to do it. And so God needs you to be the best version of you. He doesn't need you to be LeBron James. He doesn't need you to be Jennifer Anderson. He doesn't even need you to be Mother Teresa. That we can give our life like her. He needs us to be faithful followers and the gardens he's given us to plant seeds and to water. He needs us to be faithful builders in places he's given us to build, to lay foundations and to build on top of that. And I want you to know that I was working on this this week. This was convicting to me. Because there's many times where I have thought to myself, if I could just preach like Tim Keller, I could do a lot better job. And half of you are going, who's Tim Keller? (laughs) Like, that's reality. Like, I want to be somebody that most of you don't even know who it is. But this reality is I say to myself, if I could preach like that guy, then I could make a difference for the kingdom of God. Instead of, God, if I could just be faithful to be who you've made me to be, I can make a difference. If I just be willing to be foolish and look foolish to the world, then I I can make a difference. And then I read those verses about the test. And is your work going to stand up? I was convicted because I wondered, will my work stand up? How many of my messages are going to be consumed like stray or like, like hay? Because I wanted to impress people. That the purpose of me coming up here was secretly, part of it was to say, I hope people will go, man, that was great. Man, that was good. That guy is impressive. That guy can preach. And so it was hay and it was straw. And God, by his grace and his goodness, he used it in people's lives. But when I stand before Jesus, he's going to say, Jordan, you got your reward already. What you wanted was a pat on the back, and this person, and that person, this person, they came and they patted you on the back, and they said, good job, and that's all you wanted. And so I was convicted, and I'm going, God, would you change in me the immature places, because I want to be mature. I want to grow and to be a mature follower of Christ that does not care to look impressive to the people around you, but instead 
would just say, I want to be a faithful servant. That whether it's people inside the church or outside, I don't want to, I don't want to impress people anymore. I just want to be able to say, God, would you help me to be a faithful follower? Would you help me to be a faithful servant? Because all I am is a servant. Because if people start getting impressed with me, they're missing the point that I serve a master who's far greater. There is only one king of kings. There's only one Lord of lords, and he's the hero. It's not me. And so I don't need to look impressive. And so I say this because I want you to know I'm with you. If you've been convicted in this message, I was convicted as I was working on it. And I'm saying, God, would you please help me to grow? Would you help me to become someone that Paul could say, you are someone I can address as someone who lives by the Spirit, that you are someone who is building something that will last. You are someone who looks like a fool to the world because you're a true, mature disciple and you follow Christ even when it doesn't make sense to the people that live around you. And so I hope that you will join me in that. Let's pray. Father God, God, thank you. Thank you that you rescue us. Thank you that you rescue us from ourselves. God, would you help us to become mature followers? God, I pray for my friends in this room that, that maybe they were trusting not in you, but they're trusting in a phrase. I pray if they were convicted by that, they would do work with you. And they would find with you true salvation. And they would find your help and your goodness. And God, would you help us to mature? God, we do not want to stay as people that need milk. God, we want to grow to people that can eat solid food, that can feed ourselves, people that can handle the weightier matters of faith. We want to be people who see ourselves rightly for who you have created us to be. God, we don't want to be people that have to try to live our lives to impress people that want nothing to do with you. God, we want to live our lives for you and for you alone. And so would you help us, Lord? Would you help us to be those people? Because apart from you, God, we can't be those people. So would you help us to become those people, Lord? Pray this all in your son's name. Amen.